Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining SBC Leaders Podcast. I'm Kelly Keane, the Global Relationship Director at SBC. SBC Leaders is a membership of preeminent operators and operator associations formed to provide a forum for their leadership teams in order to share ideas, promote innovation in the sector, collaborate on major issues, and work to enhance the industry's reputation overall. Uh, SBC Leaders Podcast delves into uh, the personal side of the people behind these big um, leading brands. Our next guest on the podcast is Rory Anderson, who was the CEO of one bet and now works as a consultant for the group. one bet is a member company of SBC Leaders. Rory Anderson is a veteran of the online betting and gambling industry, joining 888 in 2003, just as the industry was taking off. He's held, held senior roles at Party Gaming and Empire and is now at the helm of 1-2-Bet, an operator seeing massive growth across the globe. Rory's perspective on the industry is vast, having worked for leading brands from the very start of online. His passion for sports and sports betting is part of, is part of his DNA, walking in the footsteps of his father and SBC Sports Betting Hall of Famer. Rory is also one of SBC's resident topic experts on sports betting and sponsorship. And if you've ever been to one of our conferences, you've likely caught him on stage sharing that experience with our audiences. It is my pleasure then to welcome Rory Anderson to the show. Welcome, Rory. Thanks, Kelly, for your kind words. <laughs> I'm very excited to have you here um, and to learn a bit about sort of your take on on leadership and, and the industry at large and, and what's going on with one two bet. So thank you for that. Excellent. Um, let's get going. Um, as I mentioned, you've had a pretty long and storied career. You were sort of in online gaming when online gaming started. So I'd like to know, just to kick things off, if you could tell us about a moment or two that that's defined your career in the space. Okay, well, my first job in the space uh, was when I was responsible for sports marketing at 888.com. Um, when I first joined, there were just two of us in the office. It was uh, myself and uh, Itai Pazna, who's now the CEO of 888. Um, so Itai's brief to me was pretty clear. Uh, it was to get the brand on UK TV via sports sponsorship um, and don't mess up. Um, the idea was to start by, you know, buying ad hoc perimeter boards here and there. And then, you know, trying to build that into something meaningful. Um, I guess I knew it was a good opportunity. Um, so I was very direct and focused in terms of getting as many deals done as possible. And my idea was to build this kind of calendar in my head where we had a presence on UK TV pretty much every weekend throughout the year. Um, we did deals in football, in darts, in boxing, in cricket. But I guess the deals that I enjoyed the most were snooker patch deals. Um, and this is where you had your logo on the snooker players waistcoats. Um, for me, I think most people can do, you know, big multi-million pound sponsorship deals. Um, but with snooker patch deals, there was a bit more hustle to it. And I liked that you'd go to the events, um, you'd meet with the players or their representatives, you know, have a little arm wrestle over price, work out a deal. And then literally the next day, you know, you'd give them the patch and you'd see it on TV, um, knowing that there'd be, you know, maybe three to five million people watching. So it was a really good experience. Um, I think probably the best deal I did like that was when we sponsored Paul Hunter. Um, Paul was an amazing guy, uh, a really good ambassador for both the sport and the brand. 
And he went on to win the Masters, which was a huge event um, with our logo on his waistcoat. Um, so I guess this kind of idea that you can just pick up the phone, um, organize a deal, and see it through to its end um, is really satisfying. Um, and sports sponsorship, when it's done well like that, it, it really works. Um, so, yeah, I was really happy with that. Um, I don't have great anecdotes about, you know, key career moments, but I think I guess I've had two interviews, uh, which I thought were quite interesting, um, sort of unconventional uh, interviews. Um, the first of which was when I met Noam Lanier. Um, Noam was this kind of legendary figure um, and he'd launched Empire Poker. Um, and he wanted to build awareness around his brand in the run up to an IPO that he had planned. Um, so I met him at 6.30 in the morning at Heathrow Airport. Um, he was getting a connecting flight from Canada to Israel. Um, and we spoke briefly on the phone and I was like, well, how will I know it's you? And he was like, you'll know it's me. And weirdly, <laughs> I did. Um, I saw him at the airport, approached him. Um, and then there were no ex uh, like pleasantries exchanged. He was right to it. He said, right, come with me. Uh, we're meeting West Ham and you're going to negotiate on my behalf. So we went, uh, we sat down with a club in, in this cafe. Um, and I started to ask uh, the club's representatives questions. And then out of the corner of my eye, I just felt no arm with this sort of huge, almost maniacal grin. Um, and then I was just trying to focus on, on the meeting. And then he started to high five me. Um, I didn't really know how to react. So I kind of went with it, high fived him. Uh, and then he cut the meeting short, um, said that he had to catch his flight. The West Ham guys left. Um, and then Noam said to me, we're not going to do a deal with West Ham, but you're going to work for me. And then he left. Um, and that was that. So that was uh, a kind of like a, a, an unconventional interview, which I enjoyed and kind of led yeah. to other things. Um, I guess. What, what do you think you did right in that? Why'd you get the high five? I don't know. I was kind of... <laughs> Uh, enthusiastic, uh, yeah. you know, focused, optimistic. I guess he felt that I was asking the right questions. Um, and, and he just seemed really enthused. Um, and he's quite, you know, a charismatic guy. So this kind of unconventional behavior that I since learned uh, wasn't that unusual from him. Oh, okay. Wow. But I guess I can only imagine how you left the airport. <laughs> I know, it was buzzing. I, I felt really good. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, uh, I wow. guess the second interview of note I had was with One Two Bet. Um, and I'd kind of met them in pretty much, uh, you know, standard interview environment um, in DLA Piper's office in, in London. Um, and we were talking about a chief marketing officer role. Um, mm -hmm. And I liked them. I got the impression that they liked me and it kind of went well. Um, but then I didn't hear from them for like six weeks. And I kind of thought, oh, that's the end of it. Um, but I wrote them an email um, basically saying thanks for the meeting. And I really enjoyed it, uh, which I did. And, and I got an almost immediate response that said, 
you've got to come to Vietnam this weekend. Um, and I was like a bit flustered. Uh, and I was like, look, no, you need a visa. Almost deliberately trying to slow the process down. Um, yeah. But they were like, you know, we'll sort that, we'll arrange that. So um, excitedly, I, I, I bought tickets, I booked flights. And so I left on the Friday morning, arrived on the Saturday morning, um, and I was picked up from the airport. And then there was a lot of hanging around. And throughout the day, various people would come in, say hi. And they were basically trying to get a feel for my character and to see if they could trust me or not, which is massively important. Yeah. Um, and then we went for dinner, we went for drinks. And again, I was getting asked these questions, not really work related, but more to do with my character because um, mm. that's really important to them. Um, and then over the course of the evening, I was pulled to one side um, and they said, look, we want you to be our CEO um, and we, we need you to be based in the Isle of Man. Um, and so that was that. Um, so I left actually the following morning. So I was only there for like a day um, due to the time difference. I actually arrived back in London on Sunday. And the only contact I had in the Isle of Man was Nick Morn, uh, the Red Tiger guy. Yeah. So I yeah. called him and um, I said, Look, where do you live? And he said he lived in Castletown. I should live there. Um, and that he had an office and I could share that with him uh, while I got started. Um, so that was it. I went online, uh, found a house to rent um, wow. and called the removals guys. And then I moved to the Isle of Man. Um, <laughs> I, I would say I wouldn't advise renting a house um, without having seen it in person. Uh, it was kind of damp. Uh, it didn't feel very CEO-like. Um, yeah. But yeah, overall, the whole experience in terms of the interview and how quickly everything happened, uh, it, it was pretty dynamic for me anyway. What was what was the rush to get you there overnight to Vietnam? Was Did that get revealed or was it just everyone in the same place at the same time, sort of? I think it was just everyone at the same place at the same time. And I think, that, you know, there'd been a long period of six weeks between the time that I'd met them. Presumably they were meeting other people. Um, and they're very much like that as a company that things can take time, but when it's yeah. time to go, you go, um, and it's all, you know, pretty dynamic. Yeah. I, uh, I hear from a lot of leaders about seizing an opportunity or something, right? Even, you know, in these sort of very strange situations where, yeah you picture yourself thinking about it, weighing the options and all these things. And then it's just sort of now, and, and you took both of those. Yeah. Is, do you have, like, do you feel something? Is there some sort of intuition that comes up or are you just generally willing to sort of take on opportunities like that or? Oh, yes and no. Um, I'm generally quite a conservative person, but if an opportunity comes up and it, it's exciting, you know, and you feel that in your gut that, you know, this is an opportunity. I mean, you'd be crazy not to go for it. Um, you know, that's where regrets are born, I guess. Um, yeah. And both opportunities, they felt really good. And it felt that I was joining something that was, it had momentum. Um, and it was, yeah. going to, you know, an exciting journey. Sure. 
Um, I, I just want to, if we can go back a little bit to um, the sponsorship deals that you were doing in your very first 888, two guys, I, can, I can't even imagine just two people in an 888 office, but I'll believe you. Um, what, like, I'm sure they gave you big budget. It's in, I'm sure they were really cool deals, but like, what happened? Like, were you just flooded with new acquisitions or like, did, you know, was it, was it more marketing than you could handle, you know, with players or like, how, how did you measure success back then? Um, 888 were quite, you know, in terms of online marketing and tracking, I think at one stage they were like the fourth biggest advertiser online um, in the world. Um, I think after the dot-com crash came, you know, there was a lot of online inventory, ad inventory that was quite cheap and they pretty much snapped up everything they could snap up. And that was pretty much the reason for their success. So they were pretty much into tracking, very good yeah. at that but they wanted to build the brand. Before that, they were called Casino on Net. And so they wanted to launch this 888 brand. And I still think it's a lot easier to launch a brand um, offline. Um, because all of their traffic was coming online and was trackable, any direct traffic, particularly from the UK, which was the market we were working on, was attributed to the offline campaigns. And we had this pop-up that when you went to the site, you were given a choice, you know, where did you hear from us? And it would be like from darts, magazines, you, you know, wherever we were advertising at the time. Uh, and it wasn't 100% accurate, but it did yeah. give you a strong indication of what was working and what wasn't. Um, and we were, you know, it started really small. As I said, there were only two of us in the office, yeah. but it grew quite quickly. Um, and it was more that we'd be approaching people to see what we wanted to do rather than kind of passively waiting for proposals to come in. And yeah. I think deals always work better that way. Yeah. Yeah, but back then there was no precedent. There was really no precedent. You knew there were sports players or sports betters that love sports, but that's about it, right? So, yeah. Well, this was casino, but yeah, we were pretty much after about a year we probably had the biggest presence within um, sports sponsorship from a gaming company. The, the other big one was actually Blue Square. Um, they were pretty big back then. Yeah. Wow. So, so essentially, you've been quite instrumental in building the UK market to the maturity level <laughs> it's at today, or at least uh, laying the foundation. I don't know about laying the foundation, but it was definitely part of the process. Yeah as it were from the very start yeah so as a leader um we talked about about you know being quite measured and things what do you think is your most powerful trait um i don't know um i'm still learning um every day um i think that learning to listen is a very underrated trait but I mean to sort of truly listen and put yourself in other people's shoes and really understand exactly where they're coming from. Um, I know this sounds a bit ironic because I've been rabbiting on for like 20 minutes, but I think <laughs> you really get value from an interaction. If I think that most people, after about 15 seconds of listening to someone, they kind of tune out and start to formulate their response. Um, yeah, and as I say, I think there's so much more value to really listen take the time 
and understand what the problems are. Um, I think there's huge value in that. Um, in terms of good traits, I, I mean, I'm not sure. I, I like to play with a straight bat. Um, I really value the importance of keeping your word. I think what you say, promise, is important. Uh, again, I think that's an underrated trait. Um, but it, 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 if I find someone that plays straight with me, I'll, I'll work with them for years. Um, mm. I won't be backed into a corner. I'm, in my own little way, a bit of a fighter. Um, so, <laughs> you know, I've never spent money casually for a company that I've worked for. Um, I've always treated the money, the budget with respect. And I think that's always been appreciated. Great. When you talk about um, listening and listening to people, um, how much of that is problems and how much of that is like ideas? How much, you know, because that seems to be a sort of the, the upside of, you know, do you have to mix a bit of both? Yeah, I mean, it definitely. I, I think it applies and it applies to all walks of life, I think. But in terms of problems, you know, in terms of finding solutions to problems that you face as a gaming operator, you need to speak to people who, in close proximity to that problem. And that's often people in customer support, etc. And it's, you know, listening to them, understanding where they think solutions can be found, where, you, you know, because they're chatting sometimes with the customers and know exactly what the customer's issues are. And they're the problems that need ironing out. So... Yeah, I think it applies to everything. Um, and I, I find as I've gone through my career, I, I think it's a good thing that I've become less emotionally attached to my own ideas and more open, yeah. and more open to listening to other people's ideas. And I think that's um, really important. Um, yeah, so you can remain objective and just look for the best solution for the company um yeah i think that's key great um talking a, a little bit more about listening and things like that and challenges that other people are facing sort of in their daily day-to-day -day work can you tell me about a challenge that you've overcome that really had an effect on that on your on your leadership style and brought you to the leader that you are today i, I can't really think of any one challenge that i'd sort of view as a defining moment um what i can say is that i make mistakes on a frequent basis and i'm always <laughs> learning in that way i'm quite self-critical um and i always mm -hmm. see room for improvement but i think in hindsight it's good not to get too beaten by the defeats um but equally not to get too high from the winds um and just to sort of keep moving forward uh, and I know this sounds quite simplistic, but I think it's important to start each week knowing exactly what you want to achieve and to be able to mm. finish each week knowing exactly what you have done. Um, so I think this, you know, it's not really about individual moments. It's about consistency and the cumulative effect of doing the small things well, or at least with care and attention. I think that my experience is possibly quite different to many others. Um, I've worked remotely for pretty much over 11 years now. Um, and this COVID-induced world of Zoom meetings and not being in the office, it's not really new to me. 
Um, I've always relied on Skype meetings. So when people talk about yeah, why I think it's relevant is because when people talk about continuing to work from home and, and at least away from the office, it's not for everyone. Um, I think it's really important you should consider getting back into the office as soon as possible because um, it can be tricky to build relationships um, remotely. And I think one of the main roles of a CEO is to develop a culture and culture is organic. Like it's not a thing, it's a feeling. It's the way you converse with the receptionist when you get into the office. It's, it's yeah. all the interactions that go on. And if you can kind of, you know, carry yourself with a, a sort of purpose and optimism that kind of filters through and you start to develop a culture and to do that, you know, via Zoom, it, it's really, really tough. I'm not sure how you can demonstrate to your team that you've got their backs and, you, you know, you're one big team on Zoom. It's so much easier face to face. So I think, you know, while people might be tempted to kind of continue this work from home uh, uh, scenario, I, I definitely encourage people to get back in the office and that's where you'll see uh, the best results. Mm. Is, do you think it is possible to build a culture remotely? You, there, there's a few businesses in our space that are totally remote, some affiliate yeah. businesses and things like that, right? So yeah. I wonder, um, some people must be doing it. I don't know what the culture is, but some some must be doing it. I mean, look, it's not impossible. Uh, yeah. And you can always find ways to improve what you're doing, improve the processes. My point is that it's a lot more natural uh, when yeah. it happens face-to-face. Yeah, I certainly found that to be my biggest challenge uh, was you walk into a room, you just know who the good guys, the bad guys, right? You just you just sense the energy, or at least I very well. That was a strong, you know, suit of mine. I just knew where the energy was that I was attracted to. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I can't tell you how many Zoom calls we've all been on, but I, sometimes you're just completely lost in that. Like, yeah. Don't know how this is going to land. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that's the thing. And so you might not say a point that you wanted to, and it's all quite formal. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, some good things at work happen in informal settings. Yeah. I, I, I listened in on a clubhouse chat recently, and someone said, I think it was Alex Tomek, um, is it just that we're the old guys that we're just used to face-to-face -face and younger people are used to digital interaction and they pick up on things much differently than we do? Maybe. Maybe it could Maybe. just be that yeah, I'm old. Yeah. <laughs> I want, I'm, I'm in that camp. I think that's probably a little bit of that for me as well. Um, yeah, I often, uh, more with my kids, I'm quite conscious not to criticise you know their norms and values because it is you just sound like one of those old guys who's just completely <laughs> out of touch i kind of feel like that's a right after you have kids though too <laughs> <laughs> um okay good well thank you for that i want to talk a bit about sponsorship since you are you do have such um a lot of experience and such a storied um career with sponsorship right and sponsorship is such a hot topic especially in the uk these days mm -hmm. um 
so if we can sort of switch gears a little bit, I, you know, I'd like to hear, you know, you, you told us a few cool stories, um, but I was wondering if you could tell us maybe about a team or an ambassador or sponsorship that you worked with that um, has maybe been the most progressive and forward thinking. Um, I've worked with a few good ones. Um, you know, Matchroom Sport are an obvious example. They're very professional um, and they have a great culture within their organization, a real can-do attitude. Um, and in customer service as well, when you do a deal with them, they make you feel like you've just done the best deal in the world. Um, and I think that's important. Yeah. Um, Crystal Palace, I really enjoyed working with them. It's a real community club. Um, they do massive works um, in the community there. And it's really, it's genuine. Um, and you really feel part of it as well. I think you know when a sponsorship deal is going well, when you become a mad supporter of that club, because it's mm. infectious. Um, yeah, so deals where you're not really feeling it. It's, but it's, it's generally, I find, as in, with most things in life, it's a two-way street. You get a good relationship going with the rights holder, the sports team, when you put the effort in, when you truly engage, uh, when you take the time to go and meet them. Um, but yeah, I've worked with many good clubs. Arsenal were great. Um, they kind of split the commercial team from the account management team. And I think that's quite important. So the guy you do the deal with and, you know, in some cases might not fall out with, but it's quite tense. Um, yeah. You're then passed over to a new team, <laughs> which can be a bit of a relief. Um, yeah. You get to start over. Well, um, it will come as no surprise to most of our listeners. Obviously, um, the government in the UK in particular is, is considering a blanket ban on uh, betting companies putting their logo on the football kits. Um, it's yeah. all over the media. Everyone's well aware of that this is sort of on the table. Yeah. Um, I think I read recently that eight of the 20 Premier League clubs have betting firms as yeah. the main shirt sponsor. Um and and each of those costs about ten million pounds a year or a season? No, no I think I think that's uh, inflated. Um, okay, <laughs> but it's a, okay, it's a, but yeah, it's not under a million. I would say so. It's there are millions of pounds being sort of floated on yeah. to be a kit sponsor. Um, so if the ban does go through, that equates to a, a loss, a huge yeah. financial loss. Yeah. Um, why do you think campaigners are targeting? that that one sort of very key piece of real estate on the shirt and and what do you think could mitigate those concerns on the opposite side um i guess in terms of the whole gambling review in general you have to ask the the question what are we trying to achieve uh and if reducing gambling related harm is the goal and it should be I'm not sure the so-called Asian uh, betting operators who tend to sponsor Premier League clubs are the issue. Uh, the reason I say that is because, in general, the Asian betting companies don't use predatory or exploitative uh, CRM techniques. Most don't offer bonusing. Uh, lots don't offer cross-sell to casino. There's no casino product. Um, so in terms of casino related, uh, gaming related harm for UK players, it's not really there. You know, the UK database 
are actually quite small in truth. Um, but that said, if you were to ask me, do I think there's too much uh, gambling related messaging uh, within football? I'd have to say yes. And for me, the problem exists when you watch a game and you see four or five different competitors on the perimeter of the match on the LED system. And it is, it's too much and it's not good for anyone. So, you know, in my view, a solution would be to limit it to one uh, betting partner per club. So product category exclusivity, which should be the norm anyway. And maybe say, look, okay, let's limit it to 10 minutes LED uh, for that partner per game. Um, and then it's job done. You, you know, there, there's no longer too much uh, betting advertising. But it, it's not just football. And it, well, it's certainly not just the Premier League. Um, clubs in the championship who really need the money at the moment uh, are, are massively supported by betting companies. Um, and we've done deals with table tennis, um, badminton, taekwondo, sports that could be considered niche in the UK. Um, you, you know, and you have to look at darts, at snooker. You know, these are huge British cultural pastimes. Um, they need the support. You know, sport, the way it works, you know, you have sport, you have TV, you have sponsorship. And each part of that triangle is, is heavily reliant on the other. You know, TV needs the sport for good content and uh, the sport needs the sponsor for prize money, etc. Um, and the sponsor needs the TV for the exposure. So I, I, I think it would be a shame. I understand the reasoning for it, uh, for the kickback, because I think there's too much. Um, so I think it's up to the clubs maybe to take the lead and say, OK, let's just have one partner per club. Um, otherwise, you know, there's a real danger of killing uh, the goose that's been laying those golden sponsorship yeah. eggs. Yeah. I heard someone, I think it was a radio, either a podcast or a talk show I was listening to, saying with all the, the betting sponsors that exist, the message that's being sent to just British boy or girl watching football is that in order to be a fan these are the brands that should be part of your life or something like that right like it's telling them that if you're really a fan then you should bet on it or things like that I'm not sure I necessarily believe that but I'm not a kid watching the football so I don't know is that has that come across your thoughts or no, I, I don't you know, area of discussion I, I don't think arguments like that can be just dismissed um I know I'm an Arsenal fan. When I was a kid, I wanted the JVC radio, you, you know, because JVC were the Arsenal sponsor. Um, sports sponsorship does work. Um, you know, you can't say that people don't notice it. Otherwise, you wouldn't be doing the activity in the first place. And that would be completely uh, disingenuous. Um, but, you know, as a, an, a child, as anyone under 18, you can't access our site. Um, I think, you know, it, it has a place within football and it has a benefit for the sport. Um, it's just, it don't do too much, you, you know, limit it to one uh, gaming partner per club and then it's not excessive and therefore you know, not as problematic. Okay. Well, thank you for that. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, as we close out, um, I would like to ask you uh, what we can expect in the 
short-term future, three, six months, but what, what you've got on maybe for long-term as well. What are you looking at personally and, and what's, you know, what can we expect from one, two bet? Okay. Well, at one, two bet, we're currently working on something that should open up a few, uh, new possibilities. Um, Unfortunately, I'm not at liberty to sort of go into that <laughs> in more detail at this time. Um, but what I would say is that customer experience uh, for gaming products, it can be quite strong. You know, you, you can go on your mobile, watch a game, bet on that game, uh, maybe even switch to blackjack. It can be quite thrilling. Um, but I also think it can be improved. Um, and at the end of the day, as consumers, um, it's how we feel that counts and those mm -hmm. feelings generated by the experiences we have. Um, to give a kind of clear example, if you buy a car um, from a showroom, you're happy with the purchase, you're really excited. But as you drive off the forecourt, you know, the petrol light goes up and they've only lift, left you with this kind of sliver of petrol. The experience is kind of it's been dampened, it's gone. And I yeah. think this works in all industries across all sectors. And in terms of, you need to look at the whole experience end to end. Yeah. And I think that one of the problems that sports betting and casino companies have is this issue around uh, acquisition bonusing. Um, look, I know, I know what match betting is. I know about bonus abuse. And I know how both issues can be compounded by multi-accounting. So I do understand the, 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 the need for defensive terms and conditions. But I think for your standard recreational player, these terms and conditions and these loopholes can make the whole experience just a bit uncomfortable and, and it can make it rightly or wrongly seem misleading. Um, so I'd, I don't know. Look, it's a difficult topic because... If you're to stop acquisition bonusing short term, you do put yourself at a competitive disadvantage. But if you look at it over the long run, I think there's far more value to bonus based on genuine loyalty. So if you've got a good customer um, and then I think you can start, you know, enhancing the player's experience uh, and building a better product because you know, if you look at acquisition bonuses in general, they encourage promiscuity, you know, they don't encourage loyalty. Uh, so yeah. essentially it's, it's counterproductive and it's very short term. I think when I looked at the US market and, and how that's been opening up, I'm almost a little bit disappointed that it was so heavy on acquisition bonusing because I think it was a great opportunity to start and just, you know, lead with brand lead with brand messaging and then when you get the loyal customers yeah you know throw in a, a a a tailored free bet so if it's an arsenal fan betting on a match yeah you know give him a five pound bet on, on lacazette to score the first goal you know add to the excitement I, I i think there's far more value there and i think in general there's far too much emphasis put on player value and not enough on player satisfaction but for me if you focus on player satisfaction, the customer loyalty follows, the value follows. Um, and I think, particularly looking at the gambling review, this is essentially what the UK Gambling Commission are asking for. They're saying, look, put the customer first. Um, it's a yeah. far more sustainable route. 
Um, so I think this is an area that the whole industry can improve and not just to tick regulatory boxes. It, it's to, 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 to thrive and to have a more sustainable future. So, yeah, that's right. my uh, rant. Well, thank you for that. Um, I will be in touch in six months. So we'll hear about, you know, all these things on customer satisfaction that your player satisfaction that you're working on. Yeah. I mean, in um, other industries, it's seen as a given, right? If you're yeah. not if you're not putting the customer first, you're not going to last very long. Um, and I yeah. think, you know, sports betting in particular, right? It's a zero sum game, right? So it's a tricky relationship between the customer and the operator but it doesn't have to be adversarial. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. I, the, the first episode I did with Matt King at FanDuel, he said similar. He said, we're not going to do any special promotions for Super Bowl. We're just not. If you don't want to come to FanDuel already, you know, it's going to be the same experience on Super Bowl, which is probably their greatest acquisition. Yeah. Uh, you're, you know, we'll, we'll make the overall experience so that you want to come in any day and hopefully yeah. you'll come in at Super Bowl, you know, and Absolutely. I think that's the right approach. Yeah. yeah. And I'm happy to hear that, you know, two, two, it's come up twice now. That's a good direction to be heading in. Right. Absolutely. So on that note, Rory, thank you so much for joining us. Um, no, thank you for giving cool. us so much of your candid insight and, uh, some storytelling with us. Um, you are always a sort of trusted expert with SBC, but it's nice to get to know the personal side of you and, and your stories of your career. So thank you for joining us. Thank you, Kelly. Thanks again, Rory. This has been the third episode of SBC Leaders Podcast, where we get to know the leaders behind the industry's biggest brands. I'm Kelly Keane, your host, Global Relationship Director at SBC, and you can find us on gamblingtv.com or any of your favorite podcasting sites like Spotify, Apple, and Google. Thanks for watching.